Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes, So he got into a boat, he crossed over, and he came into his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus has healed a number of people's bodies, all the while ministering to their souls. Jesus will heal the paralytic. The passage describes the place in verse 1, the paralytic at the beginning of verse 2, the pardon at the end of verse 2. And then in the text, the mood dramatically changes as the focus of the text becomes towards the hostile critics in verses 3 through 7. The disdain of the religious leaders will lead to an accusation of blasphemy. And the Savior will mount a defense. He will challenge the charge. He will prove his authority to forgive sin by his ability to heal the man in verse 7. And it records his deliverance. And in verse 8, the people rejoice over this great miracle. As we have made our way through Matthew's gospel, remember what we've discovered, that Jesus is the king. Jesus has the power over disease and over disasters and over demons. And now Jesus will prove his power even over the depravity of the human heart. We know that Jesus will demonstrate his power to forgive sin. Remember what we've seen in the gospel so far. Jesus can bring peace in the storm, but can he bring peace in the human conscience? Can he bring peace inside of your heart? He has already become famous for doing the amazing. The incredible, the unthinkable. He's cured the incurable. He's delivered the undeliverable. He's touched the untouchable. He's reached the unreachable. And now Jesus claims the unforgivable, at least in the minds of some of the religious leaders who are listening. He's making the claim that he can forgive sins. And this in the New Testament and in the Old Testament was the absolute domain of God himself. Faith, forgiveness, healing, 
All of these are important topics in the Bible. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We know that without forgiveness, it will be impossible to see God. But we also know that without healing, in the ultimate sense, in the eternal sense, it will be impossible to stand before his presence forever. And so people want healing. They want forgiveness. There's something inside of our hearts and our life and our circumstance that we want wholeness and Christianity and more specifically Christ offers what no other religion can deliver. Permanent forgiveness of sin. Assurance of salvation. Someone once asked me if I was one of those narrow-minded ministers who believe that only people in my church are going to heaven. And I told him, I'm even more narrow-minded than that. I have a feeling that some of them aren't going to make it. Because it isn't about coming to this church. And it, it isn't even about Believing everything that I say, it's believing the most important thing that the Bible has said concerning the Lord Jesus, concerning the problem of sin, concerning salvation and grace and mercy. Do you really, do you really believe that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal you and cleanse you and forgive your sin? And so it begins with the ministry of faith. Look at verse 1. So he got into a boat. Remember where Jesus is. He's on the eastern shore of the Galilee. He has just cast out the demons from the two demoniacs. And remember, the pigs have run off the cliff. And the Gergesenes, the people of Gadara, have begged him, begged him to leave. Jesus gets into a boat and he's going to make his way across the lake to the western side of the Galilee. And note what the text itself says. He got into a boat. That's right. In the New Testament, Jesus does walk on water. But most of the time, he takes a boat. And just a note. I thought about that when, we were preparing, when I was preparing this message. When Jesus leaves Gadara, he leaves the eastern portion of the Galilee, what you and I would call the Golan, or what's now modern Syria in that part of the world, in the Decapolis. According to my understanding of the New Testament, he never goes back. He, ne he never goes back to that place. There's no record that he ever goes back. The reason why I think that that's an important thing to note is that when people make the choice to say no to Jesus, goodbye to Jesus, leave me alone, Jesus, sometimes he will honor that request and that should terrify you more than the possibility of a person being demon-possessed. He returns, he goes to Capernaum, which is his ministry headquarters. Look at verse 2, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic. Lying on a bed. Mark's gospel tells us the whole story. At least in part in chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. 
It tells us that upon Jesus' return to Capernaum, the crowds started to swell. Hundreds and then thousands of people began to appear out of nowhere. A group of friends desired to present this paralytic to Jesus, but they couldn't get past the press of the crowds. And they sort of cut in line and they make their way up to the top of the roof. They remove part of the roof. They put their friend in a mat and they let him down through the through the hole that's in the roof down into the place where Jesus is there's a lot of effort on the part of caring people to orchestrate this meeting between the man and Jesus and I think, again, this is an important issue because if you pause just for a moment and think about the implications, friends bring their disabled friends to Jesus. That's what we do. Friends bring friends to Jesus. People who are broken and people who are hurt and people who are injured and people who are in need. And so don't get frustrated. Keep asking your friends. Tell them there are going to be people who are going to go, I'm sick and tired of asking him to come to, to church. He keeps saying no. She keeps saying no. Keep asking them. Well, do you have to meet Jesus at church? Not necessarily. You don't have to bring a person to church to bring them to Jesus, but by all means, bring them to Jesus. The friend's care and their persistence provided Jesus an opportunity to show his love, demonstrate his mercy, prove his power to heal and forgive and provide ample evidence of his messianic claims. We can't save our friends. You can't save your friends. Jesus can. Jesus can go inside of their heart and inside of their soul and inside of their circumstances. We can bring them to Jesus. We can remind ourselves of Jesus' power to help, but we have to be persistent and persevere. Even for those who are walking in a kind of persistent unbelief. When we get to the end of chapter 9 verse 2, we begin to explore the meaning of forgiveness. Look at the end of the verse. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The friends of the paralytic, remember, 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 in a way didn't wait their turn. They got past the maddening crowds. They pushed their way. They got to the top of the roof. It could very well be that when they tore open the roof and they let him down and Jesus is, is having a Bible study and all of a sudden a guy drops through the roof and guess what? Everything stops. And it could very well be that as, as, as Jesus sees the friends, he sees their smiling faces from the top of the roof, <laughs> that they're in a panic. They're wondering, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to rebuke them for interrupting the Bible study? And Jesus says, son, be of good cheer. The word cheer can also be translated comfort. Why comfort? He could have been in a panic. He may have been afraid. 
He's lived his life in paralysis. It could be that he had no way to stop his friends. Depending on the severity of the paralysis, it could be that they said, let's give him a name. Shlomo, get into the cot. We're going to take you to Jesus. I can't walk. I can't even feed myself. Everything that I need, I need help. But look what the text says. When Jesus saw their faith, what faith was that? It was the faith that demonstrated a persistent commit, commitment to help their friend, to help their friend, to bring their friend, to bring their friend to Jesus. Think about this for just a moment. The man's a paralytic, disabled. That means he's limited in his resources. He's limited in his abilities. The man's options were limited, but his friends cared deeply for him. And it could very well be that God will bring into your life those people who are severely limited in their resources the access that they have. And the very fact that they're willing to take their friend to Jesus means that they believe Jesus can help. In a sense, the friends persisted to the point of what some people might call being obnoxious. If you read Mark's gospel and you read Luke's gospel, you might come away with that impression. Hey, these guys are a little bit pushy with the whole Jesus business, but they won't give up. Paul encouraged the Romans in chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. It's okay to keep asking them. It's okay to even beg them and to pray for them and to say, won't you come to Jesus? That, that emptiness inside of you, that darkness inside of you, that wickedness inside of you, that guilt inside of you, that bitterness inside of you, Jesus has an answer to it. And look what the text itself says. Jesus says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Those words should bring amazement. You know, for those of you who are Christians and you've walked in, in forgiveness for a very long time, when someone says to you, Jesus forgives your sins, you might think, yeah, 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 uh, the, all, all that's well and good, but, but I need you to think for a moment. I need you to look at this text with fresh eyes. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven you, you can't go around telling people that their sins are forgiven if it's not true. And Jesus is saying that your sins are forgiven to this paralytic. And I want you to think of the implications of what's going on even at that very moment. The statement means that Jesus would have to be on some sort of intimate basis with God the Father. That he would have to know God's mind and he would have to know God's heart. And he would have to know how things stand with God. Haven't you ever wondered that about yourself? 
Haven't you ever prayed? Haven't you ever cried out to God and say, Lord, where do I stand with you? What's your mind and what's your heart when you see me? Where do I stand with you, Father? Jesus knows how things stood with the Father. People who were covered in sin and soaked in sin and paralyzed by sin and drowning in sin. They don't always know where they stand with God. Don't you remember you? In that heart and dark moment where you were evaluating your life in the darkness and the sickness and the wickedness of your heart. You're wondering where you stand with God. And so why does Jesus, why does Jesus forgive a person with paralysis? You would think he would say something like this. Your paralysis is healed. But somehow we get the feeling that Jesus is going beneath the paralysis to something deeper, something deeper in his conscience, something deeper in his soul. He's in effect performing surgery with his words. Jesus is going to deal with the cause before he deals with the symptoms. And for many, many people, the symptoms of their life, the brokenness in their life, the brokenness in the marriage, the brokenness in the relationship, the brokenness in the world that they live in, all of the brokenness in their life become symptoms of something way more problematic inside of their heart. And just like Jesus will deal with the cause first rather than address the symptoms, he, he's still going to deal with the symptoms, but he's going to deal with the cause first. So it shouldn't surprise you that he would want to deal with the cause of problems in your life first. That's the whole gospel. That's the story of the gospel. Forgiveness and hope. And I want you to note something else. Jesus isn't expressing a wish. He's not even extending a, a promise for something that may or may not take place in the future. Jesus is stating a fact. Your sins are forgiven you. Remember what I said earlier? You can't say something that powerful and that important if it's not true. How important is forgiveness? When I was preparing this study, I was doing a little research. I found an odd thing. The United States government, did you know, has a conscience fund. A handwritten note to the government read, and I quote, I'm sending $10 for blankets I stole in World War II. My mind couldn't rest. Sorry I'm late. Signed an XGI, and then there was a PS. I want to be ready to meet God. This is one of literally thousands of letters that's been received by the United States government, believe it or not, since 1811. Three and a half million dollars have poured into the conscience fund. I wonder how much of that has been kept by our current government officials. The, same, the single greatest gift was for $350,000. One lady sent in two eight-cent stamps because she was making up for using the same stamp twice. 
A former IRS employee mailed in one dollar for four ballpoint pens that she had never returned. The infractions may seem great or the infractions may seem small, but no matter how great or how small, the guilt became bigger and bigger and larger and larger. Guilt can sometimes seem unbearable. People struggle to maintain a clear conscience. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do with your failures? Whether they're small or whether they're big. One pastor wrote, quote, Our mistakes come to us as pebbles, small stones that serve as souvenirs of all of our stumbles. We carry them in our hands, and then our hands become full, and then we put them in our pockets, and our pockets start to bulge. We place them in a bag, and we put it over our shoulder, and the burlap scratches and chaps, and soon the bag of yesterday's failures is so heavy, we begin to drag it. And people have dragged all kinds of bags through those doors. And where we used to meet, over on Pierce. And where we met before that, over on Littleton Boulevard. People would drag their bags into the the church and they would speak to me. They would speak to Richard. they, They would speak to some of these other pastors, to Bob. They come in, they drag in all manner of difficulty and pain and guilt. The husband or the wife who've cheated in their marriage. The person who's struggling with same sex attraction. The pastor, the pastor who, who basically ha- had done some things, some very tragic things, and the church split and people disappeared, and he comes back to the church because he wants the people back in his church. The woman who comes into the door with the unwanted pregnancy in her late 20s, she comes in to the door and she says, I'm pregnant. And it's her second pregnancy and there's no father to be found anywhere. And she bursts into tears and she says, I can't have this child. And I knew another couple in the church who cried themselves to sleep every night because they were unable to have a child. And so I said, we'll help. We will help you. We will help you. We will make sure that you have medical care. We will make sure that you can carry this baby to term. We will make sure that the baby is born. We will make sure that that there's a loving, kind family who can minister to your child for and provide safety and security. We will help at this very moment. There's a couple praying for you and the child that you're carrying. And she agreed. And then she changed her mind. And she marched to the abortion clinic and she killed her unborn baby. Nothing drags us down more violently, tragically, than failure. The things you wished you'd never done, the people you've hurt, all of the things that if you had it to do all over again, you would try to do differently. The drugs, the sex, the anger, the bitterness, the pride, the guilt. 
And it all seemed so innocent when judged by intention. And then it became so large and so dark when it manifested itself in the consequences. It reminds me of the world in which we live. You see, there are, there are two great views of the human condition. One says that you're dirt. You're no different from a mountain or a mushroom. You're, you're animated dirt. The only thing that makes you different from the mountain or the mushroom is the way that your molecules have been assembled. You're animated dirt. And because you're animated dirt, guess what? You can't sin. There's really no such thing as sin. You are what you are and you do what you do. But the opposite thing that is equally pernicious is the idea that you are divine that somehow you're God that there's some little God living inside of you and that the real problem is that you are divine and that the problem that you experience is that you've forgotten that you've divine and that if you just had access to the information that you need then guess what everything would be would be fine but that's not true you aren't dirt and you aren't divine the truth is you're damaged by sin you're divine in the sense that you're made in the image of God, but we are damaged by sin. And because sin has hurt us so badly, we need a savior. We need forgiveness. And perhaps the most wicked and pernicious sin of all is the delusion that I don't have sin and that I don't need help and that I don't need a savior. Errol Hulse wrote, quote, sin is like the poison of a mamba snake. It's exceedingly deadly. It kills. Every sin permitted will become imperious in its demands, and every lust will aim at its maximum expression. Sin is like the devil, its originator. It is limitless in its capacity for evil. No wonder we need forgiveness. And the basic meaning of the word forgiveness is to send away. It's the Greek word aphime. It was a word that was used to describe the ancients when they would put a person in a boat and they would watch the boat sail away and disappear over the horizon. The Bible speaks of this in Psalm 103 verse 12 when, when the psalmist writes, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. The, day, the Bible speaks of unmerited forgiveness in Luke 8.42 when it says, When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. It was the story of a parable where a person owed a debt that they couldn't possibly pay. And so God in his grace and his mercy has an illustration of a king who releases them from the debt. Under normal circumstances, I would talk about verse 3, but I'm going to save it for just a moment. What I want you to do is to look ahead at verses 5 through 7 very quickly. Look what it says. Jesus says, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, go to your house. 
Let's take Jesus up on his offer. Let's ask ourselves that question. Let's attempt to answer it. Which one do you think is easier? Which is easier? Your sins are forgiven you? Arise or walk? You may say one. You may say the other. But I'm going to suggest to you that both are equally impossible for men. Both are equally impossible for a human being. Can one person say to another person, your sins are forgiven you? Ultimately, you can say it if there's some sort of transgression that has taken place between you and them. But imagine a man, a human being, or a woman says to another human being, you're washed, you're cleansed. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter that you believe in God, and it doesn't matter that you believe in Christ, and it doesn't matter that there's a cross. None of that matters. The reality is no human can say that because forgiveness is the, the prerogative of God. Both are equally impossible for a human to say, but both are equally possible when it comes from the lips of God. Which is it easier for Jesus to say? And again, you might think, well, it's easier to say arise and walk. After all, healing is tangible and visible and verifiable. If Jesus says, get up and walk, the man will, or he won't. Jesus will put his whole ministry on the line. If the guy doesn't get up and walk, if he doesn't get up and walk, then his words are hollow. Now, remember what we've already seen. Jesus has awesome power. He can heal with just a word. Again, let's think about the question carefully. Which is easier? For God, both are equally easy to do. To heal the man, all he has to do is speak. But to forgive the man, Jesus is going to have to die. He's going to have to live out his ministry. He's going to have to go to Calvary's cross He's going to have to face an executioner. G.I. Packer wrote, quote, If we do not preach about sin and God's judgment on it, we cannot present Christ as Savior from sin and the wrath of God, unquote. It would have been easier for Jesus to just simply say, Get up. Just like it would be easiest. It's the easiest. It's the easiest thing in the world for Jesus to address the symptoms of your life, all the while neglecting what's going on inside of your heart. In order for your sin to go away, he's going to have to die. No wonder in verse 6 it says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, Take up your bed, go to your house, 
Again, J.I. Packer writes, quote, the first truth is that we are all invalids in God's hospital. In moral and spiritual terms, we are all sick and damaged and diseased and deformed and scarred and sore and lame and lopsided to a far, far greater extent than we realize, unquote. And Packer's exactly right. There's something wrong. There's something broken. There's something hideous. There's something dark. But the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus has the power on earth to forgive sins. Your sin. My sin. And Jesus will demonstrate to the religious leaders that he has that authority on earth to forgive sin. And that he should be given the same honor that we would normally extend to God. He will condescend. He will give them the miracle that they're looking for. You might have thought that parting the Red Sea was a fairly big miracle. But that's really nothing compared to the person sitting next to you having their sins forgiven. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The Bible speaks of full forgiveness. Paul told the Jesus followers in Colossae that they were complete in him in chapter 2, verse 10. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. For those of you who follow Jesus, who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who prayed the prayer to have your sins forgiven, he's given you pardon. It's full forgiveness, but it's also divine forgiveness. It says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. It's also a purchased forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. When it says, in whom, that's Jesus, we have redemption. It means that you've been bought back. You've been purchased from the marketplace of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin free forgiveness in Acts 26, 18, that they may receive forgiveness of sins by faith that is in me. Practical forgiveness in chapter 6, verse 12 of Matthew. Remember when Jesus encouraged them to pray, he says, pray this way, forgive us our debts as we forgive. And it's known forgiveness, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Because of Jesus The Bible isn't speaking about a forgiveness absent the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to come back to verse 7 when it says, And he arose and departed to his house. Think about what's happened. He gets up and he walks away because everything that Jesus says is true. And when our service comes to a close, I want you to remember verse 7. In that moment, when Richard and the worship team comes back, 
and I invite you to stand. I'm going to invite you to say as loud as you're willing to say it, my sins are forgiven and you get to stand up and you get to go home. But now we need to go back just for a moment. Many of you have been here for a very long time. When have you known me to actually skip verses? Well, let's go back to verse 3. Look what it says. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. Now remember what I've already told you. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 2, we learn that a large number of people have crammed into a very small space. And the scribes, the religious leaders, they're there. They're watching the roof being raised. They're watching this man coming down. And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders go, (coughs) they start to choke. They're starting to choke. Your sins are forgiven you. The religious leaders know That only God can forgive sin, it says in Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus will infuriate before he alienates. And that still remains true, doesn't it? Jesus infuriates the religious leaders. Because he says, he claims the powers and the privileges and the prerogatives of God. And remember what I've said about the people who believe that you are simply dirt. The philosophical materialist is absolutely upset with Jesus. Because the philosophical materialist says that you are animated dirt, having come into existence through a series of random circumstances, unguided, undesigned, and therefore there's really no such thing as sin. And to to, to suggest that you're a savior is stupid. So the person who thinks that you're dirt is going to be offended by Jesus. And the person who thinks that you're divine is going to be offended by Jesus because the person who says you are God and if you could just awaken to the reality that you are God, then you wouldn't think about being a sinner. You're not a sinner in need of a savior. You're a divine being in need, in, in, in need of the right information. And so no wonder people are antagonistic. The religious leaders are convinced that Jesus is insulting God by claiming to have the powers and the privileges of God. Every scribe in the room would have been able to quote from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25, I, even I, am the Lord who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. The religious leaders would have not acknowledged that God has the ability to cleanse sins. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders will eventually unite in their plot to kill Jesus because the charge of blasphemy is going to be the charge that they're going to bring to the table when they present him before the high priest. The problem? It is blasphemy. If he's not God. By the way, I can only see three options. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, 
Jesus is God's representative and has the authority to heal and forgive as God's agent. Number three, Jesus is stating a finished fact on behalf of God. I guess there might be possibly a fourth option that Jesus is lying. He's not telling the truth. He really doesn't have the power to forgive sin. But then we're left with this situation. How then do we explain the paralytic's healing? And by the way, for the religious leaders, they're going to go with option number four. And the way that they're going to explain the healing is to accuse Jesus later on of being demonically possessed. But which makes more sense? Which seems to make sense given the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the speech of Jesus, the quality of Jesus. We know that sin is an offense against God. Forgiving sin is the exclusive domain of God. David wrote, against you and you only have I sinned. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is one of the reasons why rejecting Jesus is such a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm going to suggest to you it's offensive to God because God will eventually punish the person who despises and rejects the repeated offers of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Imagine the person who says, I resist God's love. I resist God's grace. I resist God's mercy. I don't want God's forgiveness. Then what will you do with your sin? And again, you're left with the philosophical materialist who just simply says there is no such thing as sin. That's the way that they make their sin go away. Pretend that it isn't real. But there's another challenge, and that's to pretend that it doesn't matter. Remember what is happening in the text. Jesus is forgiving this man. But make no mistake about it, he's not forgiving him absent a future cross. Absent a future sacrifice. Absent his own mission. Remember what Jesus said? I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Look what it says in verse 4. But Jesus knowing their thoughts. And guess what? That's because Jesus knew their thoughts. He had access to their mind. He had access to their heart. Jesus knowing their thoughts says, why do you think evil in your heart? And why does Jesus even make this statement? Because it is evil to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. It's evil to accuse Jesus of being morally offensive to God. And so Jesus reads their wicked thoughts and rebukes their wicked heart of unbelief. And in verse 8, look what it says down at the bottom. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God who had given such power to men. By the way, the spectators register two emotions that seem fairly common whenever Jesus shows up. The two emotions, fear and wonder. The word marveled comes from a root word, phobia, phobos, You know that word. It's rooted in in fear, but it's not the kind of fear that makes you afraid that something bad's going to happen. It's the overarching emotion that takes place when you realize that God has showed up. People still have mixed reactions to Jesus. 
Remember the religious leaders? They respond with the charge of blasphemy. Others say, look, look, look what God has done who has given such power to men. But I think they miss the point. It isn't just simply that Jesus is God's agent who's been tasked with healing this particular person and extending an offer of forgiveness. The text doesn't seem to support that. The text seems to support that a real Jesus can really forgive sin. And the scribes resented Jesus' offering forgiveness. Not only because they didn't believe he was God, but also because they believed that it was unjust for a, for a person to be forgiven their sin by simply asking for it. Just like some of us in our past where we've made the statement, you mean God would forgive a person on the simple basis that he or she cries out to God and says, will you forgive my sin on the basis of what Jesus has done, the love of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. Will you forgive me on the basis of what Jesus has done and discover that the answer is yes. It's interesting to me the person who would resent Jesus for offering forgiveness on the simple basis of asking for it until it comes their turn. On what basis will you forgive me, Jesus? Going to church, reading my Bible, doing good things? The growing resentment and rejection will eventually result in the death of Jesus. <laughs> I read an interesting story. You know, it's all too human to glorify men rather than God. And in our culture of celebrity, we look for people who will pack stadiums or auditoriums with the promise of a miracle or the opportunity to, to witness a miracle. And sometimes we just simply forget that it's God who does the work. It's God who does the miracle. John Corson writes, eight years ago, there was a guy living in Taiwan who was really in love with a certain lady and trying to win her heart, he wrote her 700 flowery and lengthy letters in a year, 62 of which included a, a proposal of marriage. The letters worked. The lady did get married, but not to him. She married the mailman. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How like us. The father sends us note after note after note and letter after letter after letter and we fall in love with the messenger. The spectators, I think, miss the point. William MacDonald writes, quote, the visible healing of the paralytic was designed to confirm that the man's sin had been forgiven. An invisible miracle. From this they should have realized that what they had witnessed was not a demonstration of God giving authority to men, but of God's presence among them in the person of the Lord Jesus. Just like here. Just like now. 
You know, in the section, we've seen the helpful companions bringing people to Jesus in verses 1 through 2, hostile critics in verses 3 through 7, and a happy crowd in verse 8. But what's most important? Look again. Your sins are forgiven you in verse 2. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk in verse 5. The Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins in verse 6. Even my sin? Even your sin? You see, ultimately, that is the message of the Bible. God's willing to forgive you and your sin. If you'll turn to Jesus, if you'll trust him, if you'll trust his sacrifice. It's interesting to me, a group of missionaries were trying to find a word for forgiveness they were translating the Bible into the Eskimo language. After much patient listening, they discovered a word that means, quote, not being able to think about it anymore. And they used that word throughout the gospel and, and throughout the New Testament to translate this word, forgiveness. that Jesus is willing to forgive you. And I want you to note so that God doesn't have to think about it anymore. There's one passage that you may not have thought of that I suggested earlier in verse 7. It says, and he arose, he got up. And departed into his house. Before the service is over with, I'm going to ask you to get up and either quietly or as largely as you dare say, My sins forgiven. By the way, if you can in good conscience do that, you should see me after the service. There's nothing that I would like better than for you to be able to say it and mean it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that Jesus will speak to the diseased sinner the weeping sinner, the trespassing sinner, the iniquitous sinner, the transgressing sinner, the atoned for sinner. Lord, you extend to us this marvelous privilege that instead of darkness, we can have light. Instead of emptiness, we can have wholeness. Instead of guilt and instead of bitterness and instead of anger, we can have joy, peace, and hope because of what Jesus has done for us. And Heavenly Father, I want to extend that invitation right at this very moment to everyone who's listening Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would extend the invitation to them that they would cry out to you and they would say, that's what I want. 
I want to know Jesus and I want to experience forgiveness and I want to experience hope and I want to experience wholeness and I want to, when I stand up from this seat, to be able to say, I am forgiven and mean it. And if that's you, like I said, see me. Let's stand. Are you ready? Give them a chance.